0: Chicken to China, the Chinese chicken have a drumstick. If your brain stops ticking, watching Leanne rhyme.
1: Right. Are we, we still going with that? Value. No.
2: 1998,
3: it was released. Thanks, you're old. Fun fact: I was ten. You were ten, and I was working for Presswaterhouse Coopers.
1: I was two. Okay,
3: there we go. <laughs> Thank you.
0: I'm Rob, and I'm Marty, and welcome to Trades Planning a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep.
3: In episode 55, we will talk about how the need for energy security and higher interest rates are clouding the path to a low-carbon future, how U.S. trade policies suffered a setback in Asia, and in our new weekly segment, China de-risking. Somebody say de-risking? <laughs> Later on, we'll talk to Ralph Osa, chief economist of the WTO, about making the case for trade. Turns out it's both simple and complicated, what success looks like for the chief economist, and thoughts on kebab. Also most important. And of course, we'll throw in a few points of listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. So let's get into it before Ralph becomes a vegetarian.
0: Well, everyone, welcome to episode... What's the atomic number of 55? Number 55. It's the atomic number of cesium. It's a soft and ductile non-radioactive alkali metal, which can describe most members of the United States Congress. Hashtag Congress. It's also the least abundant and heaviest of the five non-radioactive alkali metals. It's the number of the famous Sammy Hagar song from the 1980s. Yeah, it is. So you'll have to Google it for the non-American listeners, which are a lot of. It's also the birth year episode... Uh, Of Rob. Yay, I'm 55, yay. If you haven't been able to do the math from the last episode, now you know what 55 means apart from being the atomic
3: number of cesium. It's also the age when you can start benefiting from the AARP card, American Association of Retired Persons. I would have thought that you had already started doing that
0: just by the looks of you.
3: Thanks very much. That's great. I'm
0: joking. You have kind eyes. But... (laughs) Uh, more importantly, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and make sure you catch our future episodes coming up. And better yet, you can also share it with a friend or a stranger. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, subscribe to all of them, and do leave a review. And now that we've gotten that out of the way, where have you been, Rob? Cause it's been two, three weeks since we recorded. It's been.
3: It's been one week since you looked at me. to the, the side and I'm angry. A pretty big couple of weeks and i am of course following what everybody else is following so we do need to talk about this issue of bedazzling steering wheels apparently if you do put gems on your steering wheel these can become flying objects and they can injure you in an accident so please do not bedazzle your steering wheel
0: i bedazzle everything in my
3: life there's no compromise there's only one way to roll (laughs) also michelle should come in on this one there was quiet quitting there was different kinds of quitting now there's not enough quitting so if you're not quitting fast enough you have problem, would you say, are you quitting fast enough?
1: I'm trying to. I'm <laughs> doing my best. But what does it mean, fast enough?
3: There's not enough people quitting.
1: Well, we should answer, we're trying our best. Yeah. And so, people don't let us.
3: Sometimes you can try and they just don't get the message. I haven't had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, folks. If you do quit, we quit will give you more time to bedazzle your steering wheel. Or not if you don't have any money to pay for the
1: bedazzling. Yeah, you need to just get a steering uh, wheel. This, this. You
0: just get a
3: steering wheel, <laughs> <laughs> pretend. For, for those of you without cars.
0: It's like that guy in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. He pretends to drive with the steering wheel.
1: Or a three-year-old in their car bed.
0: Or me last night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping right into the important news story this episode. First one up, we've got the green transition. The waters are apparently muddying, like the famous guitarists from the 50s, 60s. Muddy waters, Google it. The shift away from oil and gas is still happening. Solar and wind capacity is growing fast. Governments have been rolling out policies to support low-carbon technologies, as we've seen. And billions of dollars are flowing into projects ranging from hydrogen production to electric vehicle charging stations, Tesla, even this podcast. But increased amounts of money is also flowing into more traditional types of energy assets, such as LNG, so liquefied natural gas, natural gas pipelines, which are also included in this big infrastructure business. With these headwinds ranging from high interest rates and inflation to geopolitical tensions driving an increased focus on energy security, this path to a low-carbon future we've been talking quite a bit about on this podcast now looks a bit less straightforward, rockier and more expensive than a few weeks ago. Emphasis on more expensive. However, in an encouraging sign, Switzerland, thank you, Switzerland. Always going the other direction. Has pulled the plug on their subsidies to EVs, saying that it's no longer necessary as adoption is already quite high and prices between EVs and regular cars are converging. So sorry, Elon. Of course, the real question is, what about green watches? Hashtag Hublot. It's actually a thing. There is a thing. Everybody's favorite not vaccinated tennis player, Novak Djokovic, <laughs> is sponsored by Hublot, and he wore a green ceramic Hublot watch, which is actually quite nice, but it's a Hublot, so I don't like it. Okay. Thanks but, for the personal note. Anyway, besides the green watch, or add that if you like, what am I supposed to take
3: away from this? What are listeners supposed to take away from this? We have been saying since a couple of years ago that wind and solar and hydropower and so on had come down way, way incredibly in price. Now it actually made economic sense. This was basically our line for the last few years. So it's no longer that you have to subsidize it. It's no longer that it's an issue. It's just gonna make economic sense. It's just gonna roll forward and investments are gonna get out of it. Investment funds are gonna get out of it. And now with interest rates going up and with other elements going against it, whole factoid, that whole argument that we're making doesn't seem to be the same. Wall Street Journal is starting to say investment funds are actually having a mix, more gas, more oil, more fossil fuels, and of course a couple of dams over here, maybe a bit of a turbine over here and so on. But it's not that there's an inevitable march towards green energy. And part of it, as you mentioned, is energy security. We all know the case of the Germans reopening coal plants because of Ukraine, but there, there are many other similar examples.
0: I don't know if it was wishful thinking or not, but building on this, I saw recently that EV sales have also started to slow down or plateau. People are actually buying more hybrids now because they're not really f- fully bought into the whole EV thing yet. You can't they're, charge it anywhere. Exactly. I was just going to say that. Thanks for, for, for I was mid-flow. <laughs> I was just trying it was to make the a conversation. of of a Pearl Jam. Go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, like you said, they you can't charge them anywhere. Range anxiety is apparently a thing on top of normal anxiety. It's not looking as rosy as it once did.
3: But also we're forgetting that we're in a decade long situation of z- zero cost money, or in fact, even negative cost money. So what you're saying is we work
0: doesn't have a future. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of things that are not doing great uh, on top of EVs, Biden's trade policy seems to have suffered a setback in Asia. He had hoped to present a completed Indo-Pacific economic framework agreement as a demonstration of U.S. commitment to a region where we've often seen the U.S. has been overshadowed by China. But negotiators have been unable to come to agreement on the trade pillar of the IPEF, and the administration's decision to reduce the ambition on digital trade has played a big role in that failure. This is in part because the White House is facing pressure from Congress at home who are unhappy that IPEF countries are not required to meet worker rights and environmental standards, which become a thing all of a sudden these last four or five years. Treasury Secretary Jenna Yellen told reporters that while there had been significant progress on the trade pillar, an agreement will not be reached in San Francisco. The trade pillar is likely to require further work, she said. But But there's good news here. As a consolation prize, the president was able to announce an agreement on IPEF's pillars on clean energy and
3: anti-corruption along with a pillar on supply chains, which is completed earlier this year. So that's good news, right? Yeah, it tracks with what we've been saying. And as I've said before, IPEF includes many things that are not market access, but are important for trade. Supply chains, development, at the corruption and so on, all these things are probably important. And that may be the future of this kind of discussion. But unfortunately, it's not the present of this discussion. So if you come without a trade pillar, it is a big hole and everybody knows it. The US even backed off of the digital trade agenda that they had, which I think was unexpected and particularly disappointing to some. So detracts, but it's starting to become magnified. As the election comes closer and closer, Democrats are moving further and further away from trade. What we hear is that there's certain congressmen who've said, if there's no clear tie to labor rights, then there can be no trade agreement. That's the situation that the Biden administration is in.
0: We keep coming back to this when we talk to different guests and getting through the news segments. We know that things that are not necessarily trade-related, whether that's labor, that's environmental standards, or anything, any of the other litany of things we go through are important. It's the question of how do we address those? This is sort of the chicken or the egg, I guess, is is a better uh,
3: analogy. Chickens wagging the egg?
0: Yeah, yeah, in Albania. Have you seen the (laughs) wag the dog? (laughs) (laughs) It's a thing, it's the 90s, watch it. (laughs) Um. (laughs) It always comes back to that question, yes, we need to address this, but not now. But then not now is the excuse that we give every time these things come up for discussion. I don't have the answer. I really don't know when would be a good time or how is the best way to do it. But it's, it's something we, we all know that it's an issue that we need to address with that's as I said, labor rights or environmental standards. But we always come back to the argument, well, it's just trade. Let's focus just on that and address these things tangentially. And it's a question that policymakers are also wrestling with, not just us on this podcast.
3: Yeah, very true. And I think under Biden, the U.S. is trying to experiment with how far this can go, but also predates Biden. So they've also suspended duty-free access for African countries. There wasn't a lot of trade there, so nobody's demonstrating the streets about it. However, they're giving and taking away preferences based on things that have nothing to do with market access or trade interests. And this seems to be potentially the future of the way these things are done. There must be values associated with them. But the U.S. in some ways has gotten itself out in front of this issue and especially the Democratic Party. As a result, we also see reporting from the Wall Street Journal on, for instance, Uruguay, which was hoping for a free trade agreement with the US, didn't get it. So they've moved, according to Wall Street Journal, closer to China, which is providing other kinds of incentives. There is a kind of competitive environment out there, and it's really up to the US to decide whether these things are important enough to pull preferences or to give preferences. And if so, what's the best mechanism for this?
0: So that's all nice and well, Rob. Um, More importantly, bringing profits home is another way that companies seem to be de-risking from China, which is my favorite thing to talk about on this this podcast. You know why? It's because there's just so much content that I can mine. True, It's like just hours and hours of discussion material there. It's always in the news. Anyway, for years, we know that companies have spent profits they made in China, in China, which is A shocker, I know, whether that's hiring or investment. Now, however, as growth seems to be slowing and tensions between Beijing and Washington have risen, they are pulling those profits out. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that foreign firms have yanked more than 160 billion, that's billion with a B, in total earnings from China during six successive quarters through the end of September, bringing FDI to negative levels for the first time in net FDI, yeah. Wait for it 25 years. years. It's a lot. It's like half of my lifetime. No, more than half am I talking about. (laughs) A range of factors have contributed to this profit exodus, if you want to call it that. These include a growing gap between China's interest rates and those in the US and Europe. These have made it more attractive to park earnings in the West. Many foreign firms are also looking for better uses for their money. As China's economy slows and geopolitical tensions rise, there's also these chilly relations between Beijing and the uh, US-led West, if you can call it that. They've pushed global companies to rethink their supply chains and exposure to China. However, There is a however here. Here. Data presented by The Economist, Rob's favorite, seems to have indicated that the beat is going on. Though U.S. direct sourcing from China has gone down, goods travel farther through more intermediaries, seemingly indicating that goods are still coming from China,
3: although through a bit longer route, maybe through the Belt and Road. Yes, exactly, (laughs) through the Belt, the Road, and every other thing. We've been looking at different indicators of delinking. Is it happening? How is it happening? What does it mean? The Wall Street Journal comes up with, this issue of people pulling profits out so they're not investing in China because the market's less interesting, but also because they need to move production operations out. It's a very significant difference from prior quarters, as you said. What does this mean, and how do we measure it, and is it really changing anything? The profit exodus is real, but have supply chains really changed? And so the Economist data says, no, not yet. So I don't think we know what's going to be happening in 5 years, 10 years, but we know right now it's a lot of moving the deck chairs around if you like there's many inputs that just don't come from any place but china so these inputs are going to malaysia it's being assembled and coming to us going to vietnam being assembled coming to us going to mexico being assembled come to us so in effect it's
0: doing what you were doing before but calling it a different name <laughs> paying a little more and waiting a little longer we we struck gold <laughs> with this phrase
2: it's a really good phrase
0: Ralph also is the Chief Economist and Director of the Economic Research and Statistics Division at the World Trade Organization. My old job. He joined the WTO after a distinguished career in academia with appointments at Princeton University,
3: the University of Chicago, and the University of Zurich. Ralph's research focuses on international economics with a particular emphasis on questions of policy relevance. Something we love. We really enjoy that. For example, he's explored the economics of trade wars, and trade talks and estimated how much countries gain from international trade he holds a phd in economics from the london school of economics so ralph thanks pleasure to have you on
0: your career as an economist started in the run-up to the 08 financial crisis and in between there's been COVID, supply chain disruptions and what we can call sort of the weaponization of trade through that time has your view on t- trade changed have
2: you become more or, or, or less optimistic Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure about more or less optimistic, and there's certainly uh, lots of things happening these days, but I have become more and more convinced that trade is important. And I'm not just saying this because I'm the WTO chief economist and, and have to say it, but it's actually true. Initially, I knew all these models and wonder what sort of circumstances you get gains some trade. Now, it took me a while to understand how simple the case for free trade really is, because ultimately, it's really all about the division of labor. I think all of us, when um, would agree that if we had to make everything we consume personally, uh, ourselves, you know, our clothes, our food, our house, and so on, that would be disastrous. The division of labor is a fundamental pillar of our prosperity. Once you have a division of labor, you need exchange, and you need trade. Sometimes that's within international borders, and sometimes that's across international borders. So that's how I started. That was, in a way, the first stage I realized that, at least conceptually, trade is really important. But then I wrote a paper, because at some point there was a literature emerging in economics, that said that the gains from trade are small. And I just couldn't believe it, or, or at least thought that if that's true, I'm in the wrong field. So I wrote a paper to convince myself that that's not the case. And fortunately, came out of it with the conviction that the gains from trade are actually quite large. On average, if countries stop trading, real incomes would be around uh, one-third lower. Than they are today it, it, it's actually interesting because it, it ties to the current policy debate again some trade have a lot to do with having access to goods that you don't normally have access to it's about being imp- able to import goods that you can't uh, make domestically imagine switzerland stopping trade entirely there's not a lot of uh, natural resources here for example it's quite obvious that this would be absolutely disastrous to the swiss uh and, and i was able to show that more broadly on a model then. More recently, I've also come to appreciate that they're not just economic gains and some trade, but they're also non-economic gains and some trade. If we want to successfully decarbonize, for example.
0: That's a nice segue to the next bit we wanted to talk about. The WTO recently released the World Trade Report. Now, listeners may Mm -hmm. notice that uh, I'm recording this remotely. Me and Rob are not together. We didn't break up. We're just not together. In the mountains, we haven't received (laughs) this report yet. I'm currently doing this from uh, uh, Nonda in Switzerland. What would be the main takeaways? Uh, What is the outlook for the next 18 months?
2: You should read the report. I'm proud of it. It's a really good report. and It's tackling a big question, which is what is the role of international trade in building a more secure, inclusive and sustainable world? we touched upon this just now, so it is indeed a good segue, because the narrative surrounding international trade is really changing quite fundamentally. I don't think people are doubting that there's economic gains some trade, but increasingly what you hear is that we need to give up some of these economic gains some trade in pursuit of some more important policy objectives, such as uh, maintaining peace and security, such as reducing poverty and inequality, and also achieving a sustainable economy. And the first thing that the report shows is that this change in narrative really matters. So we do see trade tensions rising, and we also see far signs of fragmentation appearing. One thing we show, for example, that if you divide the world into two hypothetical uh, geopolitical blocks based on voting patterns in the UN General Assembly, you see that since the start of the war in Ukraine, the trade between these hypothetical blocks has been growing 4 to 6% more slowly than trade within these blocks, which you could interpret as a first sign of fragmentation. At the same time, international trade is still holding strong in, in many ways, so we're not close to any kind of sh- de-globalization. That, I would say, is the first main message. The second main message that you do need trade in order to build a more secure, inclusive, and uh, sustainable world. Let me give you one example that I find particularly uh, intriguing, which has to do with sustainability. We talked just a minute ago that we have economic gains from trade, which come from countries specializing in what they're relatively good at. But what we argue is that there's also environmental gains from trade, and these environmental gains from trade come from countries specializing in what they're relatively green at. And the key difference between the two is that the economic gains from trade just materialize naturally in a market economy, whereas the environmental gains from trade really need some help. In particular, they need some policy that internalizes the environmental externality. And what we simulate is that if there was a, a worldwide carbon tax, for example, that internalized this externality, then you would get a reduction in carbon emissions, of course, but more than one-third of this emissions reduction would be due to the environmental gains from trade. So the bottom line is that international trade is a very strong choice multiplier for climate policy.
3: And let me ask you, would you say this is very novel analysis? Or would this be something policymakers wouldn't have seen before. How did you arrive at it? Because one of the things that's really interesting for us is when I looked at at your CV was you were going through different ways of explaining trade, the gains from trade, Mm -hmm. then the political economy of trade, then even the political economy of integration for places like Mm -hmm. Europe. And now in the World Trade Report, you're trying to also show the potential for trade to promote uh, a green transition. What we've been talking about since 2020 is we, we're having difficulty globally making the case for trade. So it's maybe not analytics, but it's something else. Do we have all the tools we need to make the case that you're making? And if so, how do we make it better or differently?
2: It's a good question. I've been uh, struggling with that uh, myself. I, I sometimes think we have too many tools and we sometimes don't see the forest for the trees in particular because we always talk about these grand topics, globalization, um, decoupling, fragmentation, and so on. But, but at the end of the day, When we talk about the gains from trade, when we talk about the benefits of international trade, we sometimes have to go back to the basics, honestly. And the basics are all about the division of labor. It's a fundamental pillar of all prosperity, individually, not even as a country, just individually. As I said before, if I had to produce all the goods that I consume personally, clearly, I would be extremely poor. And once you appreciate that, as soon as you have specialization, as soon as I make the shoes and you make the bread, we have exchange, and exchange is trade. And so, at that basic level, it's very clear that trade, more generally, exchange is absolutely fundamental to our prosperity. And then you can ask the question well, why is it so different to trade across borders, to trade internationally, than to trade within a country? And then it becomes quite clear that there is no big difference in the sense that the gains from the division of labor don't suddenly stop at an international borders. That's a point I just keep making. We need to convince people that trade is not just about the economic gains from trade. If we want to overcome some of the main challenges that we are facing today, such as achieving a sustainable economy. We also need international trade. So it goes beyond these economic arguments. Just
0: building on that, hearing you talk and hearing other people we've talked to over the past three years, the arguments for trade are sound. They make sense. They're logical, especially when you talk about it as succinctly as you have. However, politics always seem to be get, getting in the way with us. Now, security interests, things like this. You mentioned there's also a lot of different tools, sometimes too many, to deal with this. Is there one in particular that you
2: think is the best mm-hmm. for trying to cut through the noise, so to speak? My answer is the World Trade Report. That report to convince people that trade is not just good for in terms of economic gains from trade, but also has all these non-economic benefits. But we also have to be careful, uh, and we also have to be honest that trade is not always good for everyone i think that's also an important part of the story first of all we have to be very clear that they're winners and losers from international trade in general just like they're winners and losers from any other policy change or any other change in, in technology and another thing that always bothers me is that in policy debates often you hear that many jobs are going to be created that many jobs are going to be dis- destroyed but at the end of the day trade globalization is about creating jobs in some industries at losing jobs and, and other industries. That's the nature of specialization. Some industries expand and, and others contract. So I think we also have to be honest with what trade does because otherwise we might disappoint. So you've thought about political economy, which is really at the crux of this.
3: It's not just about analytics, mm-hmm. it's about making decisions and doing the arbitrage among different groups in society. When you're trying to analyze that and when you're talking to policymakers, how do you take that into account? How, Is it? We think about short-term versus long-term. We think about Mm -hmm. groups that are louder, groups that are softer, benefits that are diffuse, and pain that's concentrated. Mm -hmm. How do you take political economy into account when we Mm -hmm. have these
2: discussions? That's a great question. I'll give you an example on climate policy or sustainability. Last year, if you had asked me, what should countries do in order to combat climate change, I would have just given you the economic uh, textbook answer, which is where you have to have a uniform carbon price. Because that's the efficient response. And if you don't like the distributional implications of that, then just have some international transfers. And I would have considered my job done. But now what I realize, and been realizing for many years, is that there are political economy constraints. Some countries are just not going to have a crime price at least not any time soon. Countries that could receive such international transfers won't believe that they will get them. The countries that perhaps should make these transfers are not going to be willing to make them. We are operating in this world that just has a lot of political constraints. And I think it's also the job of economists to help politicians, policymakers, if the first best solution is not feasible, perhaps find the fifth best instead of the tenth best. And that means also getting uh, off our high horse uh, of beautiful models, really get into the weeds of things and and ask ourselves, well, maybe we do need some variation in carbon prices across countries. And if so, what should that look like? And really get into the, the details of that.
3: I think the job of a chief economist can be one of those jobs where everybody has a slightly different expectation. Like the chief economist is going to solve everything because they're going to bring us the best answers. So it can be a difficult spot in an organization looking five years from now back on your job. What would you see as a success? What are the things that as a Mm -hmm. chief economist
2: you're trying to influence from that role? First, let me say it's an extremely exciting job, even though obviously the trade environment is not the easiest but we have a director general who's an economist and she's very supportive of economics and also of economic research and and i really appreciate that in terms of things i'm trying to achieve it's quite concrete um actually i'm the director of the economic research and statistics division so i'm the chief economist but also the chief statistician i suppose even though we don't we don't really have that role there's three main work streams I'm looking at. The first one is data, the production of data. It's pretty self-explanatory what that is. I have some things that I want to improve. In particular, I want to make our data more accessible. I want to make our website easier to navigate so that people actually also use the excellent data that we produce. Another thing I would like to push forward is to in- invest in more real-time data. If I could get questions, typically people don't want to know what happened in Q3 of 2022, but they want to know what happened yesterday. Uh, and what happens uh, today, and for that you need your approaches. you need real-time data, you need to cooperate with logistics companies and so on. So that would be success on the data front. The second work stream that we have, I call that analysis. And analysis is very close to data. So it's trying to understand current events, putting the facts on the table, forecasting, things like that. And we do all that, but I would like to put more emphasis on that because that's what our members really want to know. Uh, That's also what the public wants to know. One concrete objective I have there is we have this forecast, and it used to be just a news item. This year, we turned it into a little publication called the Global Trade Outlook and Statistics. And I really want to develop that over the years into another flagship publication that has a similar status to the World Trade Report, something that people turn to if they want to understand what are the current trends in international trade. And then the third work stream I call research, that's more about understanding the shark. It's about deriving policy implications from these facts. I want to use my experience as an academic and, and build a bridges to the research community because there's a lot of people, I can tell you, in the research community who care deeply about uh, international trade, and we need to connect to them. My dream is that the WTO becomes the place where maybe once a year policymakers and academics come together to jointly define the research agenda on trade policy issues. Because if we manage to do that and manage to leverage this capacity, this would be hugely beneficial for us. And it would also be a win-win for both the academic community and the policy community.
3: One question, this is a quick one, which is between yeah, yeah. now and... And, and two years from now, is AI going to start doing all this for you? I actually wrote the questions
0: down that we had for this interview. So in a couple of years, exactly. it might actually just do the interview. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. exactly. We can just go home <laughs> and the podcast just produces itself. <laughs> and we, have could, we could do that, which I like, by the way. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. No, so we do actually use some AI tools already to some extent, not only for basic text analysis, like to write a shortcut of an executive summary or something like that, but also to extract standardized information from text data. For example, we get notifications from all members and they come in a particular format and that is not so easy to share. So we try to use AI methods to extract that notification, to extract that information. So I see a lot of potential for that because we have a lot of data that comes in the form of text we we'll at, uh, uh, at the the and kind of analyzing uh, these texts could be really, really interesting. The other area where I really see great potential, I, I talked before about wanting to strengthen those analysis work streams, so really wanting to detect trends on the data, do more elaborate forecasts and so on. And this is also where i a could be could be really, really useful
3: So Ralph, our crack team was not able to identify your national origin. <laughs> your accent is that good. what he's trying
2: to say (laughs) so are you swiss are you german i'm german in fact, i'm the only one in in my immediate family who only has one passport my wife is canadian pakistani my our daughter was born in the u.s we have the united nations at home but but i'm german but i haven't lived in germany for more than half of my life
3: we always ask what have you learned about your home country what did you learn about germany
2: when you are living abroad, sitting in Chicago, for instance? Honestly, it's been a long time that that I've lived in Germany. Almost directly after high school, I spent a year in uh, Bolivia, which was fantastic. I worked for a newspaper there. I did some internships at some microcredit uh, NGOs. had a great year, but that was also my experience in a developing country, and sometimes I went to very remote locations. And I really came to appreciate the basic amenities that we have here in the industrialized world up. So it's already specific about uh, Germany, but I would say about Europe or industrialized countries. Other than that, much more narrowly, I, I do remember in, in Germany we care a lot about breakfast and you know, people often boil eggs for breakfast and uh, so that the eggs don't um, explode. They punch a little hole with a needle into the egg and there are these devices where you just put the egg on this thing. But then I was in England and I was surprised living with all these people from other countries that nobody had this egg puncher, or I don't know how we want to call it, pincher, I guess. And, I, and then I thought, well, that's something really unique about uh, Germany, until I realized that uh, they're just not boiling <laughs> eggs for breakfast. And that was the more fundamental cultural of the French. <laughs> they were just having omelettes or whatever. But that's a very minor. But, but minor also f- a trade opportunity. This is a critical. I thing. guess, yes. Maybe I should have invested in egg, uh, pincher's people. In yeah. egg uh, I don't know. I egg don't even pokers. know what to call them, you know, egg like
3: <laughs> Exactly. So, kind of building off of that, you lived in Chicago for a while. You were at the University of Chicago. You hmm And I think you, you probably learned a lot about the U.S. and about different places there. So why is Chicago so much better than New York? And in particular, <laughs> why is it so much better than Staten Island? And you can take as long as you want with this response. I don't know who wrote this.
2: So you really care about that <laughs> question. So I, so I have to disappoint you because the way this works is when you're on the academic job market, you try to get as many offers as possible from universities and when i was on the job market i actually really wanted to go to um, say it
0: there we go yes
2: that's true and i was pretty sure i would get an offer at columbia university because i gave a very good job talk there i thought but then it didn't work out but i did get one at yale and i was actually thinking for quite a long time whether i should just commute because new haven is not so far But then at the end of the day, I decided to go to Chicago and I didn't regret it and just to make you happy, but it's actually true. Now, if I had to move to the US, I would never move to New York and I would much prefer um, Chicago. Simply because if you have a family, now I have small kids and being with kids in New York, is just... I uh, mean, yeah, and you can
3: see how they grow up. (laughs) (laughs) I just got that. Thanks for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) It Took
2: a while.
0: (laughs) So I guess now that we've got the Chicago... is terrible stuff out of the way. Thank you, Rob. On a scale of zero to, say, Angela Merkel, how would you rate
2: the WTO cafeteria? I don't know. If, uh, Angela Merkel is a, a 10. The cafeteria is quite good. The food looks a little bit better than it is, if I'm honest. But it's very convenient. It's heavily subsidized. Like a true it.
0: economist. He doesn't let the facts get in the way
2: of his feelings. It, it
0: looks better yeah. than it is. I like that <laughs> answer.
3: And those of us who are hmm, working down the street. Who? You know. We can appreciate the WTO cancer. <laughs> uh, you're a scientist. You're an analyst. We are <clears throat> conducting a rigorous a study of pretty much one subject, and that is the national food here in Geneva. Geneva is a canton, but also a republic. Is kebab? I love kebab. Right. This is a very. This is rare. We've had vegetarians. We've had. You everybody, can take but... the boy
0: out of Germany, you can't take the
2: kebab out of the Germans. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. what is your favorite? It's my what is your favorite thing. kebab? The problem is I'm literally working all the time, so I haven't really had an opportunity to really sample that many places. I always go to, I think it's called Ali Haidar on Rue de Lausanne, but I'm not even sure it's like particularly good. What they do have that's very good is they have homemade mm. ayran, which mm. I really like, the yogurt drink. But I will say the best kebab I've ever had was in Zurich at the Hauptbahnhof at the train station. They have a Zurich uh, bistro, and they have a supreme kebab, it's called. And it's actually really good. And they cheat It's some expensive meat that they fry you know, separately. Exactly. So it doesn't come from the, that, uh, from the, from <laughs> the pyramid. <laughs> exactly.
3: The meat pyramid.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, and Geneva, I'm going to mute I'm Rob while I answer this. for the. It's not that. It's not that. So just as long we got that out of the way, it's not that. It's literally next door. It's like the it's Adi Dasler and the other guy who invented Puma of kebab go to Alamir. And then afterwards, Al-Amir. if you want to see what you weren't missing, you can go to Pafferun de Beirut. It's next door. They're sort of fighting it out. Okay.
3: If it's 2 a.m., I mean, it just depends whether you're coming from the north or the south. You're going to stop at either one or the other. That's for sure.
0: Excellent. Well, Ralph, thanks for having joined us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking. Before we go, where can people go to find out more about what you and the work of the Chief Economist Office, and now the head of the
2: Statistics Division, are doing? You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on LinkedIn. There, I do post a lot of things that we do. We also have a website, Economic Research and Statistics Division. So if you just Google Research WTO, you're going to find it. And if you're interested in my academic uh, research, I also still have a website at the University of Zurich. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk That's to you soon right. and let us know how Alamir went.
3: This brings us to our next segment, where our correspondent Michelle tells us about the vibe shift. Michelle, is globalization finally and truly dead?
1: <laughs> well, Rob, I don't know if globalization is over, but I know that they're poisoning our AI. Well, not really poisoning it because it's not real poison, but this doesn't make it any less interesting. So you may have heard that some people are trying to change the laws about using AI images in uh, different spaces, especially the actors' unions. But other artists are taking a different approach. So you may know that AI is trained on things available on the internet. Obviously, one solution is to get rid of all training materials and just not publish any of your art. But then artists have a bigger problem since they can't share, publish, or sell their art. And I really don't think there's a huge market for mystery art boxes. So they went with another option poisoning their art through code. The idea is to add a few lines of code. It'll still look normal to any of us looking at it online, but the catch, if AI gets a hold of it, it misinterprets it as something else. So basically, if you're doing a picture of a dog, you mislabel it as a cat. And then if AI gets trained on it, nothing really happens because it's only one picture, but if AI gets trained on enough of those pictures, then it thinks that all dogs are cats. And then next time you try to get AI to create a picture for you of a dog, it'll create like a wonky dog or maybe even a cat.
3: Because right now you can produce, for instance, a group of animals playing as a rock band. Yeah. Which is a really important feature definitely of the internet yeah so you it won't be able to do that day. anymore like oh. you say i want a dog band mm-hmm. it'll be you a cat man
1: then the thing is that then ai has to make sure that it's not being trained on images that it's not allowed to get trained on.
3: what about ai just feeding on itself what will it create then <laughs> like,
1: who knows <laughs> round just
3: like round creatures is this globalized Watch should it. artists keep their stuff off the internet how do you do that or can you you have to poison it or yeah. you could not you well? keep it in the physical realm Yeah, of
1: course. But then what if you want to sell it? Or what if somebody posts a picture of it? What if it's in a gallery and somebody just goes, snap, I've been to this gallery on Instagram.
0: Libertarians didn't think of this
3: example when they were arguing for (laughs) less (laughs) government. We don't need laws. laws. Are you poisoning stuff right
1: now? No. I'm poisoning this podcast.
3: Can we poison it? (laughs) You'll think it'll be like a podcast, but it'll sound like
0: (laughs) nonsense. But
1: it's not really a podcast. Yeah. Is
3: it? It's not a podcast if you don't call it one. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That brings us to our next segment. This week in local news, you wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Michelle and I do have something we want to talk to you about. Tell me. We've been talking a lot about regulation. There's a new thing that needs to be regulated. It's called sharenting. So to show images of your kid having a birthday cake, even though they're six months old, perhaps riding a trike, they're not riding the trike yet. They seem to be fake drumming, but they're not drumming because the kid's only three months old.
0: To be fair, <laughs> how do you know he wasn't riding the trike? <laughs> exactly. Sitting on it is halfway to
3: riding it. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: That's part of the problem, Marty.
3: <laughs> Luckily, we're not living in France. They're intervening in certain cases. I don't know how they would intervene. What do they do? Take the phone away.
1: <laughs> they take the person away. <laughs> <laughs> Which
3: person? They have an intervention. They have an intervention. They we, take, I know you had a self-intervention by breaking your phone. So we haven't seen images for now three days.
1: No that's memes, no images.
3: That's because
0: Manchester United um, lost against FC Copenhagen. Lars Carlson's <laughs> not favorite team. That's all. Awesome. Actually, not why. I dropped a, a, a needle nose plier on it while trying to return it because I'm a useless at handyman <laughs> stuff.
3: <laughs> this does not.
0: You were trying to story. return
1: the, the phone, the no, needle nose no, the, plier? The, the, the needle or
0: nose plier. Or the baby. Because we're talking about sharing You can see the exact spot the needle nose plier dropped on uh-huh. the screen where I, um, as I was trying to explain to the guy how I'm useless and I don't know what I'm doing, and I bought two needle nose pliers which have no use. Yeah. For dismantling the baby bed that I was trying to
1: dismantle. Ah, we got uh, Now
3: we got back. to We came around full around. Speaking of,
0: have you seen the latest photos?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, we've seen half of them because your screen's broken. Your
3: screen's broken. So when the screen comes back on, maybe moderate a little bit. We don't want the French authorities to come across the border and grab you. Speaking of French authorities, did I tell you I almost got arrested at Geneva Airport?
0: Yes. <laughs> That's for next podcast episode, so <laughs> tune in, listeners, because this is a juicy story, and it's worthy of, I think, a segment of its own. And
3: almost, you also, in the same process, almost did a citizen's arrest of them. Yeah, I went full Karen. It's an incredible drama. This is a French sector. In other news, we talked about yacht desking, which is a very important thing to our listeners. There's now something like ALP desking. Mm-hmm. The Telegraph of the UK put out this important data. People would rather work from their mountain chalet home than from their London home or from the office. I did that last week. <laughs> you did, you literally did that it last week. It wasn't my week. home, but it was somebody else's. I was just squatting.
1: And we heard every background noise in that we home did. while editing.
3: There's <laughs> a team of three that tried to get rid of the fan noise. <laughs> because you guys came in and you're like uh, drying the boots. <laughs> Unbelievable. So they're spending more times in the mountain With the lower snow totals, people's home working is going to have to move a significant amount on the mountain. Productivity goes up.
0: Actually, no, it doesn't because maybe I'm not skiing, but I can just skip straight to the après ski.
1: That's literally what people have been doing for years. Did you just figure this out?
0: (laughs) Did I not talk about my brain trauma enough? Like exactly how it got there? It's because I didn't go to the après ski soon enough. I started with the skiing and ended up with no après ski.
3: Finally, in the village next to you where you're staying, there's been an anti-cowbell movement that's been starting. People are moving into these towns to get away from urban traffic, like in Geneva. They're moving to places that have more cows. They've been protesting the cowbells, asking for fewer cowbells. Now the villages are fighting back. And there's a story of two people being drummed out of the village for being anti-cowbell. My advice to you and others who are going to be commuting from these towns is you get Mention. used to it and move next to a church bell. The first morning you're sleeping there, the, the bell goes off at 5 a.m. Sure you have a nightmare that there's a huge spacecraft above you with aliens in it. Sure you do, but not this every day. Away. That goes away pretty fast. These bells are loud, but don't try to fight against them. Villages will come after you.
0: That's a cool story. Do you want to see more photos of my kid? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look, at my kid with a
3: cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 55, brought to you by a messy green transition, U.S. trade policy, and of course, Artie's current bout with Sharon Ting. We also want to thank Ralph Ossa of the WTO for helping us to make the case for trade, sharing headlines of the World Trade Report. You got it here first. And adding to the list of good kebab joints. Also, my computer's turbo fans. We want to
0: thank them as well. Thank them for joining. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Olguin, and Christy Bagswich for helping us highlight the vibe shift, as well as in helping produce this and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please stop making the same joke Because there's also episode. like a
3: violet thing on Emma's phone that says podcast. Don't
0: forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because we do read them, especially Rob, once he figures out where he can find the podcast. Can they write us anywhere? You can follow us on Twitter on at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining or email us your questions, comments. Rob does like receiving these at trade.splaining at gmail.com. And
3: remember, folks, listen responsibly.